Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Steven. And we're going to be talking about the 1980 film Raging Bull, directed by Martin Scorsese. But before we go on, let's hear from everyone about one movie they've watched recently that they want to talk about here. Steven, what did you watch? I saw Wakanda Forever, the Black Panther sequel, um, on Friday of last week. And um, it was really great. It was definitely a lot sadder and more dealing with grief than I expected. And I actually felt a little sad watching it just because Chadwick Boseman had passed away and they incorporated a lot of his death actually in it mm. as a character and as a person. So it was really well done. Um, there was a lot of good ac- action sequences and they also had a character named Namor that they kind of brought in a lot of Mayan culture into it. And he was different than he was in the comic book. Um, but I really did enjoy it, but I was definitely like a lot more moved than I expected out of a Marvel movie. So I have two quick questions mm. for you. Mm-hmm. Is it pronounced Namor? Because I've never I heard it said so. out loud in, in all my years of reading comic books. Is it Namor, Namor? Well, this version is Namor, and they give a reason why he's pronounced that way. Because okay. it's since it's, it's Mayan culture, um, I think mm. it means like it means something different um, than it would have in the comic books. Gotcha. And um, as d- did you like the recent Marvel movies since Endgame? You know, it, it's kind of interesting because they're, they don't seem to connect in the same way with me. And I don't know if it's just because I've seen all of them at this point. And so it, it's harder to connect with, with the newer ones mm-hmm. because I can't really see them culminating into anything at this point. Um, but I do enjoy them. And, and at this point, it's sort of I, I'm so familiar with, you know, all the characters and like what they're doing. So it's sort of like another movie for me to enjoy. Yeah, I, th- I think they've all been a little lame since Endgame. So I was curious if, if you liked this one when this is... I've seen mixed reviews for it, but knowing that you like this, but had the same opinion about the other movies as I did, I'm curious mm-hmm. now to see it. Um, yeah, it's good. Watch it. All right. Alicia. Uh, yeah, I saw See How They Run, which was like a sort of an Agatha Christie homage that was released earlier this year. It's on HBO Max now with um, Sam Rockwell and Sir Ronan and a bunch of other like British actors. Uh, Adrian Brody's on it too. Mm. Um, it was all right. It wasn't as good as I was hoping it would be. <laughs> I was kind of mystified by why they chose to cast Sam Rockwell. I mean, he was good and everything. Like he was fine. And I like Sam Rockwell, but like I a hundred percent sure there was like a British actor that could have played that part. Mm-hmm. and done the accent correctly and everything and you know it, it, actually there's an actor who named Mike Wozniak who this character basically looks exactly like him so I don't know why they didn't just hire Mike Wozniak to play this part but anyway <laughs> that was my you know issue it was a little it was a little um I don't know I felt like they kind of Americanized it a little too much but oh well just call it payback for all the uh, British people who play Americans all the time and win Oscars and stuff. So. I know. So. I know, I know. Uh, Laura, how about you? I watched The King of Comedy. Nice. I thought I'd um, seen it when I was a kid, and I definitely saw images of it, like scenes, but I never watched the whole movie. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, I love that movie. Great. Um, and Mia, have you watched anything? I haven't watched anything. Yeah. So um, Jeremiah and I have been moving uh, several states, so I'm behind on my movies. But 
I really want to watch Don't Worry Darling, which is now on HBO. I don't know if anyone else has seen that yet, but I've been following all the like, gossip around it. <laughs> um, and I was like, you know, kind of wanted to see it in theaters, but the reviews were so meh. But now that it's on HBO, I'm definitely going to watch it. So hopefully next week I will have a report on that. And I did actually get a chance to go see Black Adam um, after a long day of dealing with our move. And uh, it was it was OK. Um, it, it was it could have been better. I thought I thought The Rock was a little lifeless <laughs> through most of the movie. He spends a lot of the movie just like in this one pose, just floating around. And it's kind of bizarre. Like he's this <laughs> supposed action hero, but he's like seems to barely move in the movie a lot of the time, um, except for special effects, moving him around the screen. Um, but it was, it was still kind of cool to see characters that I grew up reading in DC comics. Cause I'm a DC boy. It was nice seeing those characters on the big screen. I never thought I would see them. It wasn't quite the same as seeing black Manta on the screen and Aquaman and being like, I can't believe they fucking did this, but, um, <laughs> still it was, it was fun. Yeah. I liked it too. I think we had talked about that in the last podcast. Yeah, you you mentioned that you'd seen it on a previous episode. Yeah. So for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight & Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. The next poll will be out sometime this year. In fact, I think it might even be out by the time people hear this episode. It's very likely and probable. So we're basically trying to watch some of those movies from past polls. before the new one is out and also after probably at this point. So, uh, and again, this time we are talking about Raging Bull. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about it going into this viewing? Who had seen it before? If not, what were you expecting, if anything? And Laura, since you picked this one, can you start us off and also remind us why you chose it? I saw it when I was a kid and I knew it was a very intense, gripping film. Um, it's also been sort of a running joke for this podcast and that it's come up a bunch of times. It's also the, the last like 1980, the oldest film that on the, on the list, the newest film Uh, on the list. What'd you say? The newest film on the list. Right. Exactly. And, um, also I wanted to see how it aged for me, how it held up was in a, so I just want to experience that again. Gotcha. And Stephen, how about you? I'd seen this movie in my mid-20s. I just had rented it. Um, I really remember liking it a lot. I remembered more the the actual fight scenes than I did actually the plot of the movie and, you know, sort of how how the characters kind of interacted with each other. And um, since then, it's been kind of an interesting rewatch just because I've seen a lot of like the Godfather movies and the Sopranos to kind of compare it in the acting um, to what I had seen when I was a lot younger and didn't and wasn't familiar with that that genre of movies. Okay, and Alicia. Uh, yeah, I had tried to watch this once before and only got about maybe twenty minutes into it or so, and uh, just couldn't deal with it. <laughs> was not enjoying it at all, and uh, stopped stopped watching it. So that was my experience with it. When did you say that was? I missed that if you did say. Oh, that was probably, I don't know, sometime within the last five to 10 years. It wasn't super long time ago. Okay. And Mia? 
So <clears throat> I had never seen this before, and I didn't even know that it was about boxing. Um, I was a little trepidatious going into it if I would like it, just because we've sort of talked about it a little bit in this podcast, and it didn't seem like a movie people were really into. So I kind of went in with like a bit of a chip on my shoulder, I think. All right. And yeah, I think the only time I saw it all the way through was probably when I was in high school, like really getting into movies and stuff and watching a bunch of Scorsese movies and all the like film brat, Hollywood brat guys from the seventies or whatever. Um, and I've probably seen so many clips of the movie cause I don't think you can go to film school without seeing clips of this movie as, as examples of editing and cinematography and acting and just everything. It, it gets used as an example of, some of the highest points of the forum, I guess. Uh, And uh, yeah. And I knew that it was a movie that directors really like as um, you know, the sight and sound poll has shown. Um, But yeah, I think I only saw it all the way through that one time and have seen large chunks of it otherwise since then in clips and things like that. And of course there is the somewhat ubiquitous meme of the, you fuck my wife scene um that's been on the internet forever uh there's a a cut of the flintstones with with fred and barney synced up to it that is one of the uh maybe longer lasting impressions of this film on pop culture at this point anyway so that's where we stood on the film (laughs) but now i want to i know now i want to Uh, so, so that is where we stood on the film before watching it for this episode, and we'll get more into the film in just a moment. But first, let's take a break. And we're back. So, as I've often done on the show, I'm going to read from an entry in the Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies, which I got when I was in high school and first really getting into movies. As always, the parts that may be more subjective aren't from me personally, but perhaps we can delve into those things as we get into our group discussion. Often cited as the finest film of the 1980s, Raging Bull is a ferocious feat of writing, acting, and directing a nimble, razor-sharp biopic that fires penetrating blows into the tortured psyche of its subject, post-war middleweight champ Jake LaMotta, Robert De Niro. Shot in gleaming black and white by Martin Scorsese, the picture glides smoothly between LaMotta's time as a lean young scrapper and his later retirement years as a corpulent, washed-up lounge lizard. Despite its factual base and pungent period atmosphere, this is a Greek-style tragedy of epic proportions. A figure of frustrated, inarticulate energies, LaMotta is eventually laid low by the same values that make him a star, battling against his brother Joey, brilliant Joe Pesci, and brutally asserting his shaky machismo against his cold-blooded bride, Kathy Moriarty. Seldom was a Best Actor Oscar more deserved than that awarded to De Niro for providing a gripping interpretation of a character by turns terrifying and pitiable and ballooning 50 pounds to play the later sequences. It's a performance that effortlessly holds the viewer transfixed, though Scorsese punctuates these harsh character x-rays with a series of firecracker, fantastically wrought boxing segments, winning another Oscar for editor Thelma Schumacher, and a dreamlike home movie interlude eased along by a lilting orchestral score. The result is possibly Scorsese's most intense and self-contained picture, 
an unrelenting, incandescent feast for the senses. As mumbling Lamada so aptly puts it, arms outstretched, cigar smoldering, that's entertainment. Again, that was from the Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies. The path to production for Raging Bull began on the set of The Godfather Part II when Robert De Niro read Jake LaMotta's autobiography while on set. He shared it with Martin Scorsese, who wasn't interested in it at first. After pushing it forward with writer Mardik Martin and getting producers Robert Chartoff and Erwin Winkler interested, Scorsese was eventually convinced to come on board as director. At the time, he was recovering from a near-fatal incident stemming from his addiction to cocaine and has since said that it was only after this quote-unquote rough period that he could understand why De Niro was so interested in LaMonda's story. Paul Schrader, who'd previously written Taxi Driver, of course directed by Scorsese and starring De Niro, was brought in to rewrite Mardik Martin's script, though the final form of it also owed a lot to the uncredited work of Scorsese and De Niro, who holed up for two and a half weeks in the Caribbean to rework things and ended up crafting some of the iconic moments of the film. Joe Pesci, at the time he was cast, was a struggling actor working at a restaurant in New Jersey. He hadn't been in a film in years, but De Niro happened to see him in a TV movie and thought he'd be great as Joey LaMotta. And Pesci suggested Kathy Moriarty and Frank Vincent for their roles. The film was barely financially successful on its initial release, and while it was not universally adored by critics, many who supported it did so emphatically, often stating that it was, or may have been, the best work to date by Scorsese, De Niro, or both. Raging Bull was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won two, Best Actor and Best Film Editing. Its other nominations were for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound. The big winner at the Oscars that year was Ordinary People, which won Best Picture, Best Director for Robert Redford, Best Supporting Actor for Timothy Hutton, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And interestingly, it was the first of two times Scorsese would lose out as best director to an actor turned first time director, the next time being in 1990, when he was nominated for Goodfellas, but Kevin Costner won for Dances with Wolves. To give a sense of what was popular in the United States the year Raging Bull was released, the top five films at the North American box office that year were From 1 to 5, The Empire Strikes Back, 9 to 5, Stir Crazy, Airplane, and Any Which Way You Can. The film was listed at number 24 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list in 1998, then at number 4 on the 2007 list. As for our purposes, Raging Bull has never been in the top 10 of Sight & Sound's critics survey, but was ranked number 3 by directors in 1992, and then number 6 in 2002. In the 2012 polling, it was ranked number 53 by critics and number 12 by directors, and among the filmmakers who had it on their top 10 lists that year were Richard Iotti, Kenneth Branagh, Francis Ford Coppola, Bong Joon-ho, Michael Mann, and David O. Russell. So, Laura, again, since this was your pick, can you start us off with your thoughts on the film after this viewing and whether it met your expectations or any other thoughts? Well, you know, I never read the book, so I'm not sure what's, you know, based on that, how much they went away from it. Um, I know that this film is a technical achievement. It's a beautiful film, you know, in like an opera. The, the editing is incredible, and it's it's noticeably incredible. It's not like the lighting where you're not supposed to notice it, you know. it's The, the editing is really something that just uh, the boomerang shot or just all the fight sequences. Um, the acting is incredible as well. 
But, you know, for me, this viewing, I found like I was watching two separate films. Um, it was very hard for me to reconcile the second heavy set, you know, Lounge Lizard, Jake LaMotta versus the original one, the maniacal, you know, bipolar, wife-beating asshole, sexually, you know, dysfunctional man. And then, you know, I just it, – it, it didn't gel because, you know, people change for sure. But there was no elements of this like funny – there was no lightness to the original Jake. And for it to get that far, it just didn't track for me. So I felt like there were two separate films. Okay. And Stephen, what do you think? Um, this felt to me like it was a movie with a capital M. Like it was just definitely one of those movies that where you actually – or in film school, you're supposed to really follow as like an example of how you kind of edit or put things together in terms of a movie. I did enjoy it a lot though. And it was very intense for me. So it's, it's the acting for me that was just something that I could really hang my hat on. Um, although, and we might've talked about this during the Godfather movies. It's like, I've seen all those characters so much in the Sopranos and in the Godfather that it, it's kind of hard to take it out and see them as different characters in this movie. Um, but I didn't mean that I didn't appreciate their acting and, and what they're kind of doing. And um, with Kathy Moriarty, I haven't seen her in a whole lot of other things. So I thought she was incredibly impressive. Um, I know that she was supposed to play 15, but um, she definitely didn't look 15. And I think that was the point. So I had to keep reminding myself that's why they did cast her for that. Um, and overall, I just really was taken for a ride and I enjoyed it. She was 18 when they cast her and I think uh, 20 when the movie came out. So mm -hmm. she was relatively close to that i mean definitely didn't look 15 though but i just wanted to throw yeah, that out there that was hard uh, for me uh, alicia what do you think i want to also well, echo what laura said in terms of like it's a beautiful film and noticeably beautiful and there's so many like filmic elements happening that are really impressive in terms of like him being like behind the ropes and sort of imprisoned by himself and like in the ring you see shots of him him alone you know punching the camera and all that is very like impressive and the um the performances are just like brilliant really I don't know what else to say about the performances besides that like they're just remarkable but um it yeah I kind of uh it it for me it fell into that mold of it's another movie about a man <laughs> who can't get out of his own way. And I kind of, I don't care. Mm. I mean, I enjoyed watching it this time. I, I will say that like, it was more enjoyable for me this time. I, I watched it the whole way through. <laughs> I got past whatever was blocking me like the first time, but I think like, I just have such a, like an intrinsic um, distaste for like that type of masculinity in real life that the first time I saw it, it, I just didn't want to do like, I was just like, why am I, why would I subject mm -hmm. myself to this for another two hours? You know, like in real life, I don't, in real life, I run screaming from things like this. Like I don't do this and I don't do this in life. So it's hard for me to like sit there and, 
subject myself to that, <laughs> you know, for entertainment. It is a bit – it is like torture a little bit. Yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like as an as a viewer, I was like getting punched in the face, yeah. you know, repeatedly. I could see that. But – but I don't want to take anything away from, you know, the, the actual filmmaking and the performing because it, those are really, really great achievements. Um, it's just a story that I'm kind of over. I, I think that the feeling of being an audience member getting punched in the face is like exactly what they were going for, too. You know, like sure. they wanted yeah. you to feel whatever the hell he's going through <laughs> or, yeah, or his I opponents it- are going through, I guess. Yeah. It's a very successful, it does exactly what it sets out to do. It's a very successful movie. It's, it's a, it's like I said, it's a great example mm-hmm. of filmmaking. It's just not a, it's just not a story that I, I'm not interested in. Right. But I don't know. And Mia. I said, I went into this with a kind of a chip on my shoulder about it, or like, I don't know, just like a vibe that I was like, I don't think I'm going to like this movie. And I actually really liked it. Um, And I thought, you know, I agree with so much of what everyone said. I thought, you know, obviously technically like the editing is so good. The directing is so good. I'm curious about the choreography for all the fight scenes, like both like the actual boxing scenes and then just all the other fights that happen. Um, You know, Joe Pesci is so good. Like all the acting is just brilliant. I felt like I was eating like a big steak. Like it's all protein. There's no filler. I totally agree that the last like 30 minutes of the film, it kind of lost me. Like I was like, oh, we're like still watching this movie. Okay. It just felt kind of like tacked on at the end. And I appreciate that they wanted to show like his life and what happened to him and his downfall and all of that. But I guess I just like, it's not even like, oh, I wanted him to end on like a high note or something. I just felt like it wasn't really needed for the story. Um, I totally agree, Laura. Like it felt like a separate movie. Um, but yeah, overall, I just thought like, whoa, th- like this is a fucking movie. Like this is something I get why this is so heralded, why it would be taught, how it could make Scorsese and De Niro. Obviously, we're like already super famous, but like I'm sure this must have like blasted them. Well, I guess you said it wasn't super regarded at first, but in my opinion, I can see how it should have blasted them into like another stratosphere of like fame and respect and all of that kind of stuff. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that this movie is the one that cements Scorsese, perhaps, as like the filmmaker of his generation. And I don't know how much of that was to come, like not in the moment, you know. But I mean, there were people, as I said, that as the movie came out, were like, this is people working at the top of their craft. You know, and I, I think what you guys are saying, I, I especially liked what Steven said of calling it like a movie with a capital M. It, it it feels important, but as Laura was saying, like I definitely think it's a hard watch. That's my interpretation of what you were saying. Like I I don't enjoy watching so much of it, but like there is, and it takes a while to get to kind of find a way to watch the movie. You know, like the the opening scenes, I'm just like, oh, my God, this guy sucks so bad. And he still sucks later in the movie. But it's like it, it it has a lot in common, I think, with a lot of movies that we've watched for this podcast of being about a narcissist just self-destructing in front of us and just getting in their own way, as someone said. Um, and I, I, there's just something that is compelling about 
that to watch on screen when done well. And I think it, this is like, it's hard. It would be hard to ever say that this movie is not done well, at least in terms of technique and craft. It's, it's like those elements of it are so impeccable. Like it looks right, it's amazing. Un, it's almost undisputable. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 there's a reason that it is talked about with the reverence that it's talked about, but it's also like a hard watch. It just is a hard watch. And like, I don't, there's a reason I hadn't watched it again since I was like 18 or whatever. And there's a reason I'm probably not going to watch it again for another 10 or 15 years in full. You know, I just don't need to watch it. I understand it and I can appreciate it and like it even for, for what it is. And I do think that there is something like someone mentioned of, I think Alicia, you said it, it does what it intends to do. And that's like one thought of like film criticism of like judging a movie for the system that it is as a movie of like, does it achieve what it sets out to do? And like, I, it must be achieving what it sets out to do. Like, you know, they, uh, but, but I do find it interesting that whereas like a movie like Citizen Kane, which is also about a man kind of slowly self-destructing over the years uh, for us to watch that movie is in theory about figuring out why he did that. And this movie has no interest in it. That's the thing that I think is kind of unique maybe about this movie and in that list of movies about people, narcissists self-destructing it, that they just don't care about exploring what made them this way. Like it starts in the middle of it and you just kind of just got to figure out who this guy is on the fly, you know, and there's no rosebud. There's no like going back and talking to all the people who knew him throughout the course of his life. Um, and I, I just find, I do find that interesting and kind of ballsy in a way that they made this movie. They had to know that like, that's a potential quote unquote problem with this movie for some viewers that, that it's, neither a likable character and doesn't try to explain why he's unlikable so that you'll understand it any they just believed and relied on their abilities to hit all the marks in terms of the way it's shot the way it's edited the way it's acted and just let that make it be enough to make it a capital m movie alicia yeah i was just gonna say in terms of how he became what he was um at the beginning of the movie even how he became that monster that he was at that early point in time i also kept thinking like is this supposed to be like a societal thing because they're 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 in this very hyper masculine sort of um time period but also like a hyper masculine like environment in like new york city in that time period and in boxing in that time period but then you do see examples of other people around him <laughs> that are like not doing what he's doing and not behaving the way he's behaving. So yeah, I did kind of wonder like what was the family dynamic? Right. <laughs> like what was also I thought the relationship with the brother was a little intense at times and a little strange, especially at the end when he was like, Give me a kiss, just give me a kiss. <laughs> and like it was just a little bit uh, weird to me. Maybe that's just like from a modern perspective, but, um, but yeah, I did also kind of wonder like, where did this person come from? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. 
does anyone have any thoughts about why he acts like that towards his brother? Well, from the book in the, in the end, you mean, or just in or, general? Or throughout the movie, but that specific moment or the other intense moments, from like where I've he's ang- yeah heard, is that the dad used to make them fight each other for money in the streets mm. growing up. Okay. So the dynamic of the brothers and the intensity of their relationship was strong. But anybody, you know, like with family of men that are similar to that knows what that what it's like. You you know, I think this film is very, you know, hits home for a lot of people. Sure. Just because you see that kind of relationship, just that intensity. Yeah. Or I have. Right. Personally. Mia? I think too the fact that they're they have their personal relationship and then they have their business relationship too, which are so intertwined. And I presume, you know, the movie just starts, right? But I he's already a really good established boxer at that point. So I assume his brother has been managing him for, you know, ten years at that point. I don't know. Um to some degree of formality or not. But I think anytime you have your family helping you with like business decisions and financial decisions. And they're obviously very intertwined in each other's lives. I think just stuff can be more intense than if you're just, just brothers and you just have your personal relationship. If there's this business side of it as well, or if you're just business colleagues, right? Like you can always Mm -hmm. walk away. Um, And I think there's, you know, scenes where they're questioning each other. Why are you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that thing? So obviously there's contention at times with the business side of things too. I think there's like another level. <laughs> I think there's like yeah. some hints at some other underlying feelings in there uh, because there's like a lot of worry about coming off as homosexual in the beginning of the film. And his first wife is like, oh, you're going to go suck each other's dicks and there's the guys at the boxing ring that are like, oh, they're, I don't want to say the word, but they're, you know, F-words when they're fighting each other. And he's just like in, he just brings the brother into like every relationship. Like he brings the brother into like the marriage mm-hmm. with Vicky. Like he meets her, he gets introduced to her through him. He's like so obsessed with like mm-hmm. her having slept with him and asking him to like keep an eye on her and. I don't know. I just think there's like some other elements. Let me ask you a question, Alicia. Do you think that translates in the second half of the film or does it just stop? Well, I think once the brother cuts off contact with him, you know, it's hard to know because he's not in the movie for for much of the second half of the film. After that, you know, attack happens, it's only when he sees him and then he's, he, you know, approaches him and he doesn't come to him to say, sorry really he just kind of is like let's forget about it you're my brother give me a kiss (laughs) like all this stuff it's it's very uh it's a very i mean all his relationships are obviously like one-sided but um yeah i don't know i mean because he's not in the second half of the film it's hard to know how much i mean we do get a lot of his inner life but his inner life seems to just be all revolved around himself sort of and not how he's not how other people are, not how he's making other people feel, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I kind of had a question for Laura and for Mia when you said that it was two different movies. Do you feel like you needed more of Jake, like his growing up, or you needed more of, you know, that part of him that was sort of on the downward spiral to make the movie more coherent? 
or do you feel like that should have been left out completely and it just being like a linear movie? Well, for me, I don't know how much of it is taken from the book and the life of Jake LaMotta, but it just, he was such a dark, controlling, jealous, scary, antisocial, sexually dysfunctional man for the first hour, maybe hour and 10 minutes. And then he's everyone's friend, you know, he's Buddy Hackett. Um, you know, he'll make out with girls at the bar. Meanwhile, he, he really doesn't want to fuck his wife, you know, like it's just, it's, well, that happens in a lot of marriages like that. But from what she had originally said, like, you know, when she went out with um, Salvi, she was fr- sexually frustrated and it just seemed like it was just a different person for me, to me. Yeah, I, I felt similarly too when, when he said he bought a club. And then he was the one up there making jokes. I was like, oh, wait, what? Especially because there had been the scene earlier within there at the Copacabana and there's the guy on stage making jokes and everything. And I was like, wait, that's what he's doing now? Is he funny? Like, what? It <laughs> just yeah, totally like there's, threw there's me. There's no scenes of that from? in yeah. the early part yeah. of the film. Not even <laughs> and, an inkling. No, yeah. not an inkling at all. And it just seemed really – and I get that they wanted to show – like, and I mean it's true. Like that's what he did, right? So if they were trying to show the story a little further beyond his boxing career ending, they needed to do that. I guess for me, I guess I would have been fine if they were just like, here's like a five or ten minute just like tack on of like here's what happened and not really make it a part of the movie. Just more like hmm. here's how things ended kind of. Um or I think if it had been more balanced or something. One thing I wish they mm. – I looked it up later. He was married seven times. So I would have loved if they'd had some more like scenes of that. Yeah, seven. <laughs> Which I was like, holy shit. That means there were five wives after the two that are 80% of the movie. You know, like that's nuts. So I guess to me it just felt kind of unbalanced where there was so much attention on these – 20 years of his boxing career and then they're like kind of like oh and then this other shit happened to him but like it felt very fast to me um as opposed to being more like either cut it or really go into it and just make it a much longer movie well i have two things on this i i think that i agree that it does seem to come out of nowhere but i do think it makes a certain amount of sense because like he's not someone who knows how to function on a person-to-person level and he can't box anymore so it's like Somehow he ended up doing this because, and he sucks at it. He's not good on stage. He's terrible at telling jokes. He like his line deliveries when he's just like practicing are just like ab- abominable, um, and not much better on stage when he's actually live. Like he's not good at it. It's but it's like he needs to. The only way he can like function in the world in a way that isn't completely dysfunctional is to be like doing something in front of people where he's like at the center, you know? And so that's what the, the uh, avenue he has to himself once he's let himself go and can't box anymore. I, I think that it makes sense in that regard. What are, The other thing is the story goes that one of the things that De Niro and Scorsese did with the script was they rearranged it because Schrader's version of the script, Paul Schrader's version, um, had the stand-up act peppered throughout the film instead of bookending it. Hmm. And they decided they didn't want want that. Or no, actually, I'm sorry. I think they did shoot it that way. And it, I think it was uh, in the edit that they undid that. Scorsese and Schoenmacher decided like that wasn't working. And it was better to just have it be 
uh, more linear, except for the flashback from the very beginning when they show him large at the, and and bad at the mm-hmm. beginning, and then start the flashback to his, his career as a boxer. Um, but I don't know. Did, would anybody does anybody think that that would have worked better to see more of it throughout the film? So it didn't. No. Yeah. I don't either. I think it would have just seemed like have. intrusive. I just I think wanted, it, I mean, if he was going to be funny, you don't just you're not funny out of nowhere. Like I get he's the not jokes funny, fell though. flat. Well, the yeah. thing, but he still he thinks he is. He didn't even yeah. he right. didn't demand an audience. He didn't you know he was just agitated and angry all the time. Right. It, it just was hard for me. I made my point. Oh, stop making it. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm interested you know, in it. I, just, I, I mean, I don't disagree just... with you that it seems out of nowhere. Like like I said, I just think that he has to be at the center of attention because he doesn't know how to function otherwise, uh, and he right. can't and be I, in a one on one relationship like with this anyone in my life. And they yeah. but they can still be dynamic and interesting and tell good stories. Right. You know. Sure. But then they twist on a dime, and it's something else. But you don't get that in the beginning. He's just a blockhead who takes a real like a good punch and is brutal. Right. But I would say that that's what makes why it makes sense that he's so bad at being on stage as a, as a comedian. Like he's not built to be a comedian. He like there's nothing in the early parts of the film that shows that 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 would seem to lead him on that path. It's like a, just a split second decision he probably made at some point that like, I'm going to buy a club and I'm going to start doing stand up because that seems like something I should do. And probably if anybody was around him to tell him anything uh, that he would listen to, they'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? This makes no sense. You're not funny. You can't you can barely string a sentence together in front of people. Yeah, I, I, just, don't, know. I don't know. I think the brutality versus what happens at the end. Yeah, he's pathetic. But it's. Mm-hmm. Different. He's he's trading on his name. That's what he's yeah, doing. That That's all he yeah. can do. And he's diminished. Like he's obviously like not a together person. And they want to show you how pathetic he is at this point <laughs> in his life. I right. think. It I yeah. I the second half worked for me. I do agree that they didn't like lay the foundations for him being wanting to be in comedy or whatever like that did kind of come out of nowhere but mm-hmm. a lot of athletes and people do try to make that turn at a certain point in their career because you can only be an athlete for so long uh oh, your sure. body's only going to do that for so long so you have to you do try to do other things but um yeah i did think that also you get that scene of him in prison in the second half of the movie or in jail rather where he's in solitary and he just goes nuts in there. And I think that that also ties a lot of stuff together. And for me, so for me, that actually, that that whole second half of the movie worked fine for me, really. That's why I asked the question, because it worked completely fine for me. And I, I didn't really think that it was unbalanced. I just felt like what you said, Alicia, about like people just kind of do what they know how to do or what people tell them what to do if they've done, done one thing their whole lives. And he was just trying to do something and everything he tried to do after that just didn't work for him. And it sort of culminated to the end with him being upset with himself. Uh, Alicia, I'm curious what you meant by that scene tied it all together for you. Like what, what in that scene sort of crystallized something for you, if that's what you meant. Just that he, he's, a, he's a raging 
he's a raging bull. Um, like he's just a he has these issues. They never went away. He's pretending. He's playing. He's acting. That he's this like Joe happy go lucky uh, Mr. Entertainer mm-hmm. club owner. When he's not, when his life is falling apart, really, still, his wife leaves him at this point in the movie. Um, right. You know, he doesn't have her, he doesn't have, he even says, she, she, he goes over to the house for something to get his the belt, bolt, his um, belt, the belt yeah. to pawn the pawn it. And he doesn't even do that right. And she's like, why don't you get your friends to help you? And he's like, what friends? And it's like, yeah, he doesn't have yeah. friends. He has like people that come to his club and that he mm-hmm. tries to like be jovial with, but there's no deep connections there so. yeah I, and I, I feel like that scene is linked in some way to maybe the only other time in the movie where he shows like a genuine emotion other than just pure rage because like I would argue that that scene in the, in the cell is like him breaking down emotionally like he's he's sad and pathetic and realizes it. it's not just anger that's coming out it's coming out as anger but it's other emotions mixed in there but after he throws a fight and he breaks down in, in the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the, not backstage, <laughs> it's not a stage, but uh, after the event um, and he r- realizes like he's screwed up his entire um, like goal. His goal was to, to get to the championship on his own terms and never have to like throw a fight and, um, you know, do it anybody else's way. And he is undermined that he's lost his sense of purity about his, his goal and his, um, what, what he thought he could do. And that's the only other time in the movie where he seems like, um, sympathetic in any way, shape or form, I think. Um, but I, I don't know like that. I think that that's the other theme of the movie or maybe the theme of the movie of, of this, this sense of a purity that he has about him and then he undermines it. And is that what sets him on the path towards his corpulent lounge lizard self um, as the encyclopedia of the movies calls him? I had some questions about the logistics of some of the fights. I don't know if we want to go into all that, but like I couldn't understand the first fight. I think it was the first fight in the movie. He basically knocks the guy out, right? But yeah. then he loses the fight. Like I didn't understand. Yeah, because it's not just that. about it's, yeah, points. it's points, and mm-hmm. oh. they went the full ten rounds. <laughs> they did points and points. Yeah, yeah. You can still it's, get I think it was down. also timing. Yeah. Like there's only so mm-hmm. much time that you can fight. I think, and so then yeah. at the very last round, the guy's down for like seven seconds or something, and I think you have to be down for ten. But Save the time, bell. yeah, the timing yeah. for okay. the fight overall ended like a second before he would be done. And he had done better earlier in the fight and had points. So even though it ended with a knockout, he was saved by the bell. Is my I was literally just figuring this out. I don't know shit about boxing. So yeah, well, yeah. I think it was that, and also like, uh, didn't they imply hometown advantage because he was like in Cleveland and it was the Ohio that was boxing commission thought. rules yeah. and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. yeah, they just decided he didn't he shouldn't win, and I was like, how does that? How is that? <laughs> Yeah. Like, well, I think it well yeah, yeah, there's a reason he was outraged by it and his supporters were outraged by yeah. it. But yeah. 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 I have a feeling that the points are kind of subjective e a little bit, maybe too, of like who if there's not a knock because I don't think there's a knockout like every single round, right? It's no. just like you in know, boxing go. in general there isn't. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more like who wins each round, probably based on like, I don't know, number of punches or types of punches, something. Right. No, I know. But yeah. But is it like, you know, could you be like, okay, like kind of in gymnastics, right? Like they get a score for each thing, but like it's a little subjective. I don't know. Well, of course, it's, like, it's like with the other fight with um with Ray that they gave it to him. And I think they tried to show the film that that Lamada won, but because mm-hmm. he was going into the army mm-hmm. by decision. Yeah. Right. So yes, to your point, Mia. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also was like a little confused about the fight that he threw (laughs) because I was like, it didn't seem like he was trying to make it look real at all. Maybe that was just like, yeah, I mean, that was part of the problem. Is it like he couldn't, he couldn't, right. He He couldn't throw a fight. He couldn't put himself into throwing a fight because it was like against his purity as I was. And then he got in trouble because he made it too obvious that he threw the fight. And so then he got banned for a few years or Two. two years. Yeah. I thought that yeah. just went back to his intelligence. He couldn't even throw a fight correctly. I don't I know if it was the, intelligence, though. I think the guy was just though. such a bad fighter that he was so shocked by yeah, it. Yeah, there was that, too. Yeah. But but I thought it was just that, like, he could, like, there was a pride about it that, like, he was trying to throw the fight and trying to give the guy the ch- opportunity to make it look real. But he was like, I can only do so much with this fucking idiot. This, right. like, this bum, as he called exactly. him, you know? Um, and, and at some, some point, he's just like, I, whatever. I'm just going to I'm not going to just fall down when this idiot touches me like I should, which is what his brother points out uh, mm-hmm. after the match. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought, too, because the mm-hmm. whole thing with throwing it is all tied up in like the neighborhood crime gang yeah. guys, you know, who he has like tried to avoid and try not right. to have anything to do with personally or professionally but now to get where he needs to go he needs to make them happy so i that to me was part of it too where he's just like no like i'm not gonna play your game i can't do it um right even though he ends up screwing himself at least for some time because of that but that was also something that i was curious about i was okay that they didn't like set up his life before that we just start and you have to figure everything out but i was really struck by the differences between him and his brother, you know, like his brother is like chill with these guys. We'll go hang out with them. We'll go talk to them. And then he's just like, no, I don't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think that happens in a lot of families, with, you know, stuff like that. You know, everyone makes up their own mind about certain things. And one of them was okay with the organized crime situation. And one of them had, you know, personal feelings against it yeah i was just curious like why you know i mean i guess it just ties into like why are they each the way they are right mm. well i i got the sense that jake is basically the only thing he believes in in the world is himself you know that's the only thing and so he, that's why he doesn't want to rely on the local crime boss to help him make his way through the ranks of of boxing and but but his brother is a little more pragmatic and understands the, the realities of the world yeah. and knows it like hey just because or at least I'm not saying he knows it like it's a reality but like his in his mind just because you got some help to get there doesn't mean you didn't do the work to win the match the you know once you are there 
So uh, he he just saw it as like a more pragmatic way. I I do want to say though, just real quick, like the thing, one thing that stuck out to me on this viewing is Joe Pesci. One of the biggest cliches in movies are talking about like De Niro gaining 50 pounds for this movie, you know, and he like ate his way across France and Italy for like four months as they shut down the picture, you know, but um, Joe Pesci is so good in this movie. He's like the secret weapon of this movie, I think, because he's just like, you can understand every decision he's making and everything he's saying to his brother. You could see him weighing like, what is going to set this idiot off that I'm related to and have to deal with and work with and, and love and hate at the same time. And he's just so good. And it's insane that he wasn't really like in anything uh, notable before this. And this is like sort of launches his career, you know, like he's so good, Laura. I want to say that I thought Kathy Moriarty was so good. And yes. this is one of the few times I've fully been offended by something that one of the, your, you know what you read from in the beginning of these? Oh, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Me probably, too. Um, when they call her cold-blooded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get that either. I yeah, I was say. like, fuck yeah. you. I know. She's 15. Yeah. She's surviving. Yeah. She's getting yeah. the shit kicked out of her. Like, yeah, yeah, we'd only see her getting really brutalized, you know, a couple times. But right. you, it's obvious, you know. So, f- so fuck whoever wrote that. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Seriously. Yeah, I I, don't, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. She's so good. She's the acting great. is so good. I love her accent. Like she's beautiful. She's, just, too. she's so beautiful. She's so well dressed. She's so cool. I, if you love her, yeah. you should watch this movie called Soap Dish. She made okay. it a lot later. Oh in her yeah, life. that's that's okay. great. That's a great movie. And also, but she's Casper. incredible in it. Awesome. Also, what, Jeremiah? Casper. <laughs> Wait, Casper? Casper. Yeah. The ni- yes. Not the 90s one. Like the. Yes. <laughs> really? Who is yes, she? Yes, she's in Casper. I don't know. I haven't seen it in, since it came out, and I barely saw it then. Oh, I loved that movie when I was. She's memorable enough to remember Casper. Yeah, I looked at her filmography as I was prepping for this episode, and she it's kind of interesting she was in this movie and then like another movie or two right away and then like a pretty like a five-year break until she was in something in 87 um i forget what and then it was like she was in stuff through the 90s and has been like kind of less in things since then too but um i don't know interesting career just looking over her filmography she was in the recent american crime story about versace there you go well, Laura, you had a question for the group if you want to go to that. If this film was shot in color, would it be as impactful? No. I really like the black and white, especially with the boxing scenes. I thought it was just made things so stark and incredible. I mean, I did really like the little home movie color flashes and stuff like that, but the black and white, I think it just elevates the film too, right? Like it. When we're when with Steven's movie with a capital M, it's like it helps with that for sure. Like I said, I haven't read the the biography, but I know that I think one of the first lines of it is something like, "When I think about my life, I think of my memories in black and white." But I know that that didn't weigh in. That wasn't the reason why Scorsese shot it black and white. So I just thought it was all just something to think about. Well, it's also interesting then that the 
reality of the movie is black and white and then the home movies which you would normally think of as memories are in color mm -hmm. with that in mind so he, he shot it in black and white because of like wardrobe stuff essentially right like the something to do with like the color of things uh, i don't know something with that and something with film stock that I he think, wasn't happy right. with at the I time think they, they developed which the i didn't film quite understand color stock or something but the budget mm -hmm. I don't oh, know. Was it that, they, that the stock that they could afford to get in color just wasn't something he was going to be happy with? You know, I, I, I would misspeak. I'm not yeah. exactly sure. Yeah, people, go look it up if you're interested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, it was like technical reasons that he didn't shoot. Like, it's not, I don't think it was, I think I'd heard and I don't, I couldn't find anything then to support this when I was looking it up before that it was similar to Psycho where he wanted to shoot in black and white because, uh, he he thought that it would make all the blood more palatable. Mm, that's um, interesting. Hmm. But I, I couldn't find anything to support that. I think that's just like an apocryphal thing I heard from somebody sometime. Um, but anyway. Yeah. I think I remember uh, that from, um, what movie was that? Uh, one of the Kill Bill movies. I think that's how they got around. Yeah, yeah. The, it yeah, in our movie. Right. By making it black. The and first white. one, I think. Yeah. Because it, it goes into black and white when like the crazy 88 gang or who I think comes in. Yeah, exactly. Goes at her. But um, yeah, I, I do also think that it would not be as impactful in color. I, I think it was a smart decision to be in black and white for whatever reason mm -hmm. it was. Um, yeah, there's something about it that does make it seem important. Like I, I and it's it's almost like cliche, but but it works, you know, like that. After a certain point, when when black and white had fallen out of favor, that when a movie is in black and white, it usually denotes some level of artistic importance. Mm. Um, and but there's a reason for it sometimes. This and this is it. Just it just fits this story. It fits like the time of the story, and the the fights look so amazing. Even black from, and white. I like what your point is in terms of the it, it's saying something that it, it it's it sees itself important um, from the opening credits. It sort of does right. that. Yeah, totally. It's like almost operatic mm -hmm. with the music going and the slow mo and all that. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, Stephen, did what do you think about black and white versus color? Oh, I'm I'm on the same page as everybody else. I, I do like the black and white scenes. And I felt like it was more impactful having like the warmth of like his just regular life of, you know, jumping in the pool and the wedding scenes mm -hmm. and everything. It did feel a little bit more like documentary style, like someone's life when you saw something like sure. that. Um, but, you know, I feel like, you know, it, it kind of goes into the balance of the movie. Like what was his home life and what was like his fighting life and the black and white felt like his fighting life to me. Yeah, it puts you in that era, and that was like an era when things were a little more glamorous, <laughs> like especially like in 1980, you know, the world was very, or at least my my view <laughs> when I look back on that time period when I was only two years old, um, the world seems very like gritty and kind of gross and a little like over the top in terms of colors and like a little garish and stuff. And when you, it would to 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 make a movie in that time period and set it in the forties and fifties, I think it's really smart to do it in black and white, just because it's such a contrast to, you know, the world around <laughs> the world mm -hmm. around you at that time. And yeah, there's just a glamour to to black and white, and there's a glamour to that time period. 
I wanted to know what everybody thought about the quote at the end on screen, I was blind and now I see, because I felt like he never saw, <laughs> like, I felt like he never got out of himself. He never like, I mean, I think he recognized that he had like problems, but I don't think he ever did anything about it. So I thought it was mm-hmm. a very strange quote. I read an article um, that's an interview and Scorsese said that he tacked that line on to the script um, so that when people read it, they would see that it had like a biblical weight to it. Um, Not necessarily intending it to be in the film. Um, Mm. But, you know, obviously he's Scorsese himself is a failed priest. He'd just gotten out of like rehab where, you know, what the, from what I read, he was quote unquote bleeding from every orifice from like whatever had happened to him, whatever oh, mix oh. of drugs he was doing. So I think um, he added that and used it um, for himself to show yeah. what the film meant to him. Yeah, I think it makes a lot more sense as a director statement than like a statement of what the film is trying to say necessarily. You know, which doesn't so that does make a certain amount of sense, unless without context, you know, you don't know those things, but right, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's so it's a choice, Mm -hmm. but because what is I was confused by it too, and because what was it was the quote, and then it was like something at the end, like his signature. Um, Oh, he that's just like he said something to a teacher that passed away. That was, yeah, okay, yeah, I was just confused by. I guess so, yeah, that made me think it was just more separate from the film, not really associated with it. Oh, it wasn't associated with the film, yeah. It wasn't. Yeah, also the way he signed it, Marty, which I know, like, his friends call him, you know what I mean? But, like, obviously that's not, like, what he's known as, as, like, a director. So (laughs) that also made me think this is just separate. But, yeah, I was also reading it and, like, trying to tie it back at first, and I was like, what the hell? Like, (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I agree that it doesn't make sense, like, within just the context of the movie, if you don't know anything about Martin Scorsese and his history and all that. But, like, yeah, I think when you know the history around the production and him at the time where he's like, this might be my last movie because I could die. Um, So it it makes a certain amount of sense then. It's like, this is me signing off just in case. I think it was also right after New York, New York, right? Which was a big flop. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this was, it was kind of, it could have been a swan song. Right. His last chance to make a movie. Yeah. And that movie is actually gained more of more acclaim in recent years. So if anybody's interested in checking it out, I I am interested. I have never seen it. That is definitely. I saw it in college and wasn't thrilled with it, but I might like it more these days. I don't know. I almost um, walked into Martin Scorsese on the street one time oh, in New nice. York. Did he say anything to you? No, move. but he turned around and looked at me because... I'm well, walking no, here. It was hey, me. Hey, hey. It was, me. It was me that was walking here. Like, he was walking in <laughs> front of me with his wife, I guess, and they were like, you know, they're a little bit older. This was This was like almost probably like 20 years ago. It was like right when I first moved to New York. And they were walking kind of slow. And... It was like Times Square area, and I was trying to get wherever I was going like really fast. And you know, you're annoyed by everybody when you're walking around over there. And I'm like stuck behind them because there's people on either side. And I was like, (laughs) you know, like Alicia. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was just so annoyed in that moment, like, and because Times Square, and I didn't know, I didn't think it would be anybody. And then he, I kind of got to the point where I was about to like 
get be able to get around them. And he kind of turned around and looked at me, and I was like, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Guess you're not in his like, next I mean, picture. Like, I felt really bad. I mean, I should have felt bad no matter who it was, but I was really just like, oh my God, Alicia. You should have. You're, you're in New York. Story. You never know who you're going to be around. It's true. Like, you never know who's going to be in your fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's, what nice. it, that's the story. So those are our thoughts on Raging Bull. We will share our final thoughts on the movie and answer our bonus question after this break. And we're back. Uh, So what was your favorite scene or moment or element of the movie? Laura, can you start us off? I have to say the fight scenes were incredible, but there was this one shot that I'd never seen anything like it, and it was like a boomerang shot where it literally it, it goes with his punch out there, and then it literally comes back and it punches him. It's this. It was just an incredible shot. I've never seen anything mm. like it. Um, that stood out to me, so that I looked that up. But a lot of the fight sequences and you know that that to me was art. There you go. Uh, Mia. My favorite was also the fight sequences. Specifically, I'm pretty sure it's the last fight when he gets the shit just like totally beat out of him. And there's just like a ton of blood and it's really intense. But the lighting in that scene um, is just like such dramatic, like black and white and was just really intense. And I, I can only imagine what seeing that in a movie theater would have been like. And Steven? My favorite was, I think it was when he was in jail at the very end and he just started falling apart and he was punching the wall and screaming why um, and then like hitting his face and it was just very intense and I actually felt sorry for him and I didn't the entire movie until that happened and so just to evoke that in me, I was just like, I can't believe I'm actually feeling sorry for, like everything just culminated in that scene of like all the mistakes that he had made and you know, it just made me kind of empathize with him which was a surprise, but so yeah, that was my favorite. And back to you, Alicia. Yeah, I agree with Steven. I think the most, I think that that was for me the most effective scene in terms of like feeling his rage and feeling his turmoil. I mean, you see it before, but you don't really, that's a moment that's really visceral. And like, you can see that even when he's alone, (laughs) even when he's alone, he's just like a tortured person. It's not just in the ring. It's not Mm -hmm. just when his wife makes him mad or his brother makes him mad. It's like, he's just a tortured soul. I think previously I would have said the cinematography and throughout the movie and the editing, especially during the fight scenes. But since that's been well covered, I'm going to say Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci is my favorite part of the movie this time. Um, so has the movie, as far as you're concerned, stood the test of time or another way of framing it? Do you think it resonates today? And, uh, Mia, why don't we start with you? Um, yes, definitely. Stands the test of time. Still resonant. I agree with what Alicia was saying earlier though. I mean, I hate him. Like he sucks. Right. And I think I also don't have a ton of patience for like, wow, this poor guy kind of movies. And, you know, I think there's a thread to discuss of, oh, we've talked about a lot of these because there's a lot of ones on this list of, you know, what are considered classic movies and who are making the decisions and all of that kind of stuff, which we've talked about before. Um, 
so, you know, I think that would be my only like ding against it. Like I think the movie is so well done, so well directed, so well acted, all of those things that like it is this absolute classic capital M movie. Um, but as always, you know, like I would have loved to see like more of Vicky's story in this and more about her. It's not a movie about her, so I get it. But like make another movie that's just about her just so I can see her more. And Alicia? Um, yeah, similar. Like I, I I do think like I said, it's an achievement in filmmaking and it's an achievement for like all the actors and, and for the direction and the editing and everything. But um, I just wish that there was like <laughs> – I wish we could, as a society, I wish we could find a better way to tell stories like this because I do think it's a very, like, worthwhile um, thing to examine, uh, this type of personality and this type of, like, masculinity and this type of, like, fragility. But it does, it does, it has its message, but then it's the way it's sort of revered in pop culture where the movie is revered in pop culture and the the black and white and the love for it and everything like to me like slightly undercut it slightly glamorizes and slightly undercuts the fact that it's a dark story about a very like messed up person that no one should want to emulate in any way so, so like scarface yeah, sure. It's, yeah, like I mean, like a lot of movies from the last hundred years. Oh, gangster <laughs> shit. Yeah. 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 Well, not I the mean, Godfather, just like a lot of Goodfellas. The Godfather. Any of those. Mad Men. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have yeah. to be in that world. You know, it's it's it's. Oh, for sure. It, you know, were we watching Succession right now? I mean, same thing. Yeah, and even like the new um, the new version of Game of Thrones, I think, is really an interesting watch mm. because it's very much about like how patriarchy is affecting the society and the women. It's more, it's much more women focused. There's much more of a female gaze. There's still some questionable things here and there, but like the first version of Game of Thrones was very much a male gaze type of show uh, in a lot of ways. And this one is much, this one they're, they're doing it a little bit differently. So I really appreciate that. Anyway. Sorry to go off on that. It's nice. No, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's other ways that we can tell these stories, you know, and so I, I yeah. look forward to yeah. more of that in the future. Stephen, do you think it resonates? Oh, of course it does. And, you know, just the transformation that um, Robert De Niro went through and, you know, he became a different person in this movie. And also the fight scenes were just, they, they felt real. And that's just a testament to how it was directed and put together. But I don't think there's anything that I can say that everybody else hasn't kind of said about it. So mm-hmm. very good. Laura? I think it's an achievement. There's nothing like it. But does it resonate? No. I think it's about a, a, a dying kind of m- man, uh, a certain kind of masculinity that doesn't resonate anymore. And um, listen, I grew up with this. I know like it was everywhere. It was socially acceptable. You know, like that was how – everyone was, but it's changing. The world's changing. I know it's still out there, but nobody really wants to hear this story anymore from their side. It's, it, you know, we don't want to pity these men, you know, because of all their self-loathing because I don't know. I just, I don't think it resonates the same way. I think it's a, 
an old story that's we're, we're all kind of tired of seeing or I am. I think it stands the test of time because it is an achievement of craft and technique and all that. Um, I would also say that it resonates today because as long as there are self-destructing narcissists, this type of story will make a certain amount of sense to people. I'm kind of like, I don't think this movie pities him at all. I think he's so unsympathetic in it. So I, I don't really understand saying that, like Mia, you said that it's, like, why this guy or something? I don't think this movie has a good attitude about this guy. I think this movie hates this guy to some extent. Like, it it, it doesn't show him in a good light. Um, so I do think that it has a, a difference from, like, Citizen Kane. I'm trying to look at the list. The Godfather. These movies that show men in uh, a self-destructive mode. And like I said, I don't think this movie... Sh- really cares about why he's this way. It's just showing you the act of him self-destructing. And so I do think there's, it's different in that way. That said, I totally agree that there's plenty of movies about, about white men in the world going through all this shit. And we could use uh, more movies about narcissistic, self-destructing women and people of other (laughs) backgrounds. HBO is on it. Don't worry. Sure. So, yeah. Anyway, now it's time for our bonus question. As we're recording, the World Cup is starting up. So what is your favorite sports movie? Alicia, since this was your question, do you want to answer first? And also, I should point out, it's also appropriate because of the movie we're talking about in this episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, I didn't even realize that. Is this a sports movie? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't even question. think of boxing as just like a fighting i don't even think of it as like sport but i guess it is definitely it's in the olympics um yeah that's true um i guess my favorite uh sports ball movie is uh probably the natural with robert redford i just it's i just remember i haven't seen it in a really long time but my memory of it is just like he's so beautiful and like the movie is like beautiful and he hits the ball and the the light the he hits the ball into the lights or something and the lights in the stadium all start sparking all over the field. And it just is like, Oh, it's just beautiful, beautiful. Like I don't care anything about like the actual sports <laughs> to quote a, a, a Canadian slash British comedian that I enjoy. I don't care where the ball goes. Um, so <laughs> for me, <laughs> if a sports, a movie about, sports and playing ball can like emotionally move me that one did so that's my favorite there you go steven how about you i do enjoy a a bunch of sports movies but the one that came to mind was moneyball which came out in 2011 with brad pitt and jonah hill Um, and it was just a different take on like how you know, teams are put together and how to use analytics to kind of figure out your teams. And it was told, I read the book, which was kind of dull, but watching the movie, it was presented in such a great way that I really remembered seeing it and really enjoyed it more than I expected. Mia? Uh, My favorite sports movie is Remember the Titans, um, starring Denzel. I just love it. I cry every time. Wait, Denzel who? Denzel Washington. I'm sorry. Are there two Denzels in Hollywood? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just um, he looks great. The sports ball looks great. Um, you know, it's like 
racial integration and football in the South. Oh, it also has baby Hayden Panettieri in it. Um, who sucks? I hate child actors, but you know, whatever. But yeah, it's just really good. Like the soundtrack is really good. You cry. It's very touching. In second place, though, I will say the new A League of Their Own television show is so good. I also love A League of Their Own movie. It's great. But Alicia's making a face, so maybe not. But I really love oh, this no, television no. show. I was oh, okay. with you and regretting that okay. I forgot about A League of Their Own, the movie. When I thought of yeah. my favorite one. <laughs> yeah. A League of Their Own is so good. But yeah, I was really – kind of like with the TV show, I was like, mm, we'll see. They're just going to remake it. But like, I feel like they really updated it and added new characters and dimensions. And it was so good. And I just – I feel like a lot of people didn't watch it or I didn't really hear people talking about it. So every opportunity, I want to promote it because it was so good. It is so good. <laughs> uh, all right. And Laura? I, I like sports movies a lot. Um. I'm a, I'm a sucker for them. It was between two and, um, you know, The Hustler is an important film for me, but I had to go with Rocky. I just had to. All right. There you go. And for me, it was also between two, Moneyball, which I think is a great recent sports movie. My other choice, since Stephen already went with Moneyball, I'll go with this one, is... Uh, Field of Dreams. I love that movie. It's so cheesy, but so damn good. Um, it's just like there, there's no reason that movie should work. It's, it's ludicrous, true, but it does. Um, yeah, it's and it works, and it works so well. Like it makes it makes no sense. It's just like one of those magic movies, you know. And while we're at it, let's see what people in our Facebook group said when we asked the question there of what their favorite sports movie was. Uh, Steven said he was torn between A League of Their Own and Major League, both good picks. Charlie said Eight Men Out, one of John Sales's best, which I do agree with. That's a great movie. Uh, but he also said honorable mention to an underappreciated classic, Searching for Bobby Fischer, also a good movie. And yeah, I don't hear people talk about that one a lot anymore. I feel like it was omnipresent for a little while when it came out in, in the years following. Rebecca said uh, Heroes Get Remembered. But legends never die. The Sandlot is her answer. Man, a lot of baseball movies. There are so many baseball movies. Uh, JPK, who has been a guest on this show in the past, suggested Bull Durham. Phyllis, my mother, in fact, uh, is a big fan of Remember the Titans and Cinderella Man. And George went with Hoosiers, but also says that he has a place in his heart still for Bad News Bears. So those are some of the answers from people on our Facebook group. And please do look out for when we ask questions like this in the group, if you want to be included in the show. So our next episode is Alicia's fifth pick. Do you want to tell us about that? It's um, Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, released in 1979 and available to rent on Apple, Amazon, Google, and I'm sure other places too. And we should probably tell people which version we're doing. Yeah, and we this could be part of the podcast. Uh, Stephen answered me before. Uh, I emailed everyone saying, like, I think we should uh, watch Redux because the only time this movie appeared in the top 10 was on the director's list in 2012. And the most recent thing that had been out was Redux. And I have a feeling like maybe that coming out and people watching that might have led to it making it onto the list. So I thought that that might make sense. Does 
anybody disagree with that or have other takes on like whether we should watch original cut or final cut that came out in 2019? I mean, I think your argument kind of really holds up. So I, it's hard to, to disagree with that. I was, I was aiming for the original, but I think you make a good point, Jeremiah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I I mean, and I think we could, I think if we watch Redux, that one is mainly stuff was added in. So we could easily kind of talk about what the movie is with and without that as part of our conversation too. Um, And just throwing it out there, we'll see what happens with the sight and sound list that might be out as people are listening to this. Uh, Maybe we can end up watching Final Cut later. Mm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's a whole commitment. So it sounds like we're going with Redux. All right, Redux. Redux Redux it is? Redux. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good with that. All right. So that's it for this episode of Stereoactive Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club. You can also email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. It helps others to find the show, and we really appreciate it. Also, you can get updates about the show by following Stereoactive Media on Instagram or Twitter. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.